0: Welcome to the Healthcare Improvement Podcast, brought to you by Healthcare Improvement Scotland, an organisation that enables people to experience the best quality of health and social care. I'm Leona Armstrong.
1: And I'm Stephen Ferguson. In Scotland, over 90,000 people have dementia. Globally, the number of people living with dementia is expected to increase to 153 million in 2050. There's a common perception that dementia is a natural part of the aging process, but it's not. It's caused by illnesses that affect the brain. It can affect every area of human thinking, feeling and behavior, but each person with dementia is different.
0: We don't yet know exactly what causes dementia. Medical researchers all over the world are working to find causes and develop treatments. New evidence surfaces regularly, but how do clinicians decide what evidence is robust and what evidence should prompt them to change how they deliver care? Today, we're delighted to speak with experts about Scotland's new National Clinical Guideline for Dementia. The guideline makes recommendations to health and care professionals on a dementia diagnosis and how that conversation should be delivered. It also gives recommendations around the support people should receive after a diagnosis and discusses a topic that hasn't been explored much before, pre-death grief.
1: To find out more about this new guideline published by SIGN, a part of Healthcare Improvement Scotland, we will be speaking with Jacqueline Thompson, a nurse consultant who was the lead on the pre-death grief section of the guideline. We'll also speak to a carer who experienced pre-death grief, while caring for her husband.
0: But first we'd like to start by welcoming Dr. Adam Daly, an Associate Medical Director and Consultant in Old Age Psychiatry. He was also Chair of the Guideline Development Group. Adam, if I could begin by asking you how the guideline came about and why is now the right time to produce a new guideline?
2: Hi, Leona. Thanks very much for asking me to come along and speak about this. It's a a really important topic and and really essential to dementia care in Scotland, I feel. It grew out of a a need, really, um, a need that we perceived because the previous guideline from SIGN had become out of date, and this was previously a guideline that clinicians in Scotland relied upon greatly. So there was definitely a gap there. And the initial idea came as a a joint project from psychiatrists, that is doctors who specialise in mental health, who see a a lot of dementia in their day-to-day practice, and also the Alzheimer's Scotland, which is one of the the largest organisations and charities that represent people with dementia and their carers. But this guidance doesn't come out of nowhere. This is built on a number of years of dementia strategies in Scotland. We've really set a standout on the world stage saying that we specialise in dementia care in Scotland. We have an interest in this area and we're committed to it. So Scotland really is a a good place to try and put forward really good strategies on dementia care and to really try and progress care for people with dementia. A lot of progress has been made, but a lot of progress still has to be made. And I think there's still a lot of variation from person to person and place to place in dementia care. And that's really one of the things that we hope to address with the guideline. Obviously, things have changed an awful lot in the almost 20 years since the last guideline came out. The workforce has expanded greatly. There are now an awful lot more people working with folk with dementia, and that includes social care colleagues. But we've also changed our point of view. And it also now involves people who are relatives and carers and indeed people with dementia themselves within our teams to try and help people who have dementia. We also took advantage of the fact that the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, which is NICE, uh, had recently produced a dementia guideline, which, although very useful and very comprehensive, did not have a focus on Scotland and Scottish people. So there were a number of gaps there that we could look into and that we could really make sure that it, it addressed issues which were important to the people in Scotland.
0: Thanks, Adam. What would you say are the key points in the new guideline?
2: we made a number of recommendations many many recommendations actually but they fall into five broad headings identification and diagnosis is the first we looked a lot about tests of memory that people might be familiar with but what people maybe don't know is that there are so many tests of memory it's hard to tell which ones are right and which ones are are wrong ones to use so we've given clinicians Quite a bit of guidance on what to use there, and also looking at the more advanced tests, such as scanning and and giving people advice there. We focused on post-diagnostic support as well. Uh, Post-diagnostic support is something that was central to the very first dementia strategy in Scotland but it's something which is still evolving and will continue to evolve forever more as we learn how to do this better and we listen more to to what people need as society changes and as as people change. We've also done a fair bit of work in this. on looking at minority groups as well and what they need for post-diagnostic support, for example, younger people with dementia. We looked at non-pharmacological support. So what that means is non-medication based treatment for dementia and the symptoms that people have as a result of dementia. And sometimes that can be difficulties with agitation, which can sometimes even lead to aggression and also sleep as well. These are important things for people as they live their lives so that they can try and live better lives and so that we can help them do that. The final two revolve around later stages in the illness. One is around grief and particularly the the concept of pre-death grief. Um, And and the other is around end of life care and planning. It is somewhat unknown, or or perhaps people don't know about it as, as much as they should, perhaps that dementia can be a life limiting illness. And because of this, people do need to plan ahead. Brave discussions need to be had. And we hope that this guideline will help people have those brave discussions that will mean that whenever the later stages of the illness does come, they and their families are better prepared and can make better decisions for them in the long run.
0: So going forward then, Adam, how will this guideline benefit people living with dementia?
2: Many of the questions we sought to answer in this guideline were actually proposed by people with dementia, their relatives and their carers, either by ways of focus group or by people who have lived experience of of helping somebody with dementia actually being part of the guideline group. So that focus means that a lot of what we included in the guideline will be directly relevant to people living with dementia those topics that I mentioned earlier hopefully will be of interest still to the wider community of people with dementia and clinicians and and other care professionals who are helping them but we aim to make those delivering the care thinking more broadly about what's happening so not just about the stage of the illness that they're helping with but about the whole journey that the patient will be on along with their family. We hope that it will standardise care so that everyone will receive the same good level of care. And we hope that it will encourage people to plan and think ahead so that they're better prepared for what is to come.
0: There's a lot of information in the guideline about the support people should receive after a diagnosis of dementia. So how will we make sure that the recommendations are
2: followed? Well, this is a very challenging thing with any guideline because we can tell people what the best practice is, but it's difficult to make them adhere to those guidelines. The first step really are things such as we're doing today is to try and help people know more about this guideline, make sure that people are aware of it and make sure that they can consult it. The documents are publicly available so anyone can get access to them and consult them and see what their care should be like. We will be asking health boards and health and social care partnerships to monitor their own actions with regard to this guideline and try and make sure that they're actually adhering to it. We're also going to work with Healthcare Improvement Scotland and in particular the Focus on Dementia team, who have a programme of work which has been ongoing for many years with many successes uh, to help monitor this as well and to help with the implementation of it. And we're also working with Scottish Government Um, We were liaising with them before the most recent dementia strategy was published and we hope to continue liaising with them as future work plans are published with regard to the dementia strategy to make sure that we have the highest level of involvement in implementing this guidance.
0: One new area in the guideline is a focus on pre-death grief for people with dementia and their carers. That's a term that you've just mentioned. Why was this regarded as an important area to focus on?
2: This is something which people with dementia and their carers and and relatives felt was largely neglected and something that maybe makes sense to folk out there, but is something that they maybe haven't thought about explicitly in the past. So this term of pre-death grief is related to the the slow losing of a person over a number of years. As parts of their memory go and parts of their personality change, the, the person themselves changes and ceases to be the person in many regards that we used to know. I would say that there's often a part of the person still there, even to the very, very end, but it definitely does change. And that loss, the loss of the person to talk to, the loss of of that personality is something which carers and families and even people with dementia themselves see, but don't see reflected or recognised. It is in much the same way as whenever a, a, a person dies it is a, a very um, it is a very public occasion Grief is expected and grief is acknowledged but while the person is still living with dementia that is a more difficult thing to try and communicate to friends and relatives and particularly people who haven't experienced the loss that comes with dementia. So we hope that by making sure that uh, people are aware of this and that people feel able to talk about it, that we break down some of the stigma around this process um, and thereby allow people to get more support that they need as they're going through this pre-death grief.
0: Some really insightful information there, Adam. Thanks so much for that.
1: Thanks, Leona. Adam has just highlighted why pre-death grief is important to include in the new guideline. We're now joined by Jacqueline Thompson, a nurse consultant with Glasgow City Health and Social Care Partnership, who led on the pre-death grief section of the guideline. Thanks for joining us today, Jacqueline.
3: Thank you. You're welcome and thank you for the invitation.
1: Can you start by explaining to us what is meant by pre-death grief?
3: The definition that we use within the guidelines was drawn from evidence and that surrounds the pre-death grieving process, not only for people living with dementia, but also for their carers. And so a generally accepted definition of pre-death grief is that it is a grieving process which begins from the point of diagnosis of dementia until physical death of the person living with dementia. So that that can be quite a prolonged trajectory for pre-death grief. What we also recognised within the review of the evidence for this section of the guidelines is that uh, a common theme for pre-death grief is is that as with other grieving processes it's recognized that this is a process of reacting to loss and there are uh, some unique points of loss not only for the person living with dementia but um for their carers and the guidelines draw out some of those themes. And so it's important for us to highlight and to recognise that in the section on pre-death grief within the guidelines, there's an acknowledgement that the lived experience of pre-death grief may be different for the person living with dementia versus that of a carer. And those may be subtle but important differences Um, that the guidelines highlighted. And um, I just feel it's useful to elaborate on a bit more within the podcast. From the perspective of the person living with dementia in respect to their possible lived experience of lived-death grief, what is recognised through the evidences is that from that point of diagnosis of dementia, there is a sense of progressive loss particularly roundabout um, point of diagnosis that may cause the person living with dementia to consider deeply their future, the impact of what the diagnosis is going to have on their future, and can give some consideration to their actual physical death um, in due time. There were a number of themes that the literature highlights in terms of what are possible losses to be perceived from the perspective of the person living with dementia. And um, the most common theme and the most feared is a loss of personal identity that's associated with pre-death grief from the perspective of the person living with dementia. And then there are other themes throughout um, the section which are acknowledging... There could be actual or anticipated losses, loss of social roles, fear of loss of functional competencies and um, a fear of loss of autonomy and control and concern about changes in the relationship quality, family dynamics and freedom. So those, those are the main themes that have emerged for the person living with dementia. On the other hand, the experience of pre-death grief for a carer of a person living with dementia may be different. Um, And of note, the evidence base suggests that this experience of pre-death grief is more prevalent in carers than a person living with dementia. And that may go unrecognised and hence the value of the guidelines to heighten our, our awareness of the concept of pre-death grief akin to the person living with dementia a carer's pre-death grief uh, process can also begin at point of diagnosis but may fluctuate across the course of the dementia trajectory and there's a recognition of key transition points which could be key touchstone moments for the person uh, who cares for somebody living with dementia. And these are recognized as critical transitions, such as hospital admission, hospital discharge, entry into 24 hour care, or as the dementia worsens and advances. So there are key touch point um, moments and transition points for a carer, um, but it's useful for health and social care uh, professionals also to be mindful of um, as we come into contact with people um, who are carers of those living with dementia because these touch point, transition points could be a critical moment for us to intervene and recognise a pre-death grief process for a person living with dementia. And again, there's a sense of loss, Uh, Fear of losses, decline in memory, communication, losses in personality, losses in functionality, um, and losses of family dynamics. And it may be within the family uh, dyad and the caring dyad, there's a wide variety of experiences and emotions rooted in grief. And they are sorrow, anger, yearning, and hopefully acceptance.
1: Yeah, I'm just wondering, what what, what do you mean by that, Jacqueline? The the, the caring dyad—that's a term I've not heard before.
3: So it's the relationship between the person living with dementia and their 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 carer. Right. So right. Yes. That sort of it might that sort of relationship. Between, yes. Between one another, and um, because. Um, as the dementia trajectory changes, so may the relationship mm-hmm. between the person living with dementia and their cared one as the disease leads to sort of functional and cognitive losses and communication losses that can present um, additional challenges for the carer of a person living with dementia.
1: That's, that's a really helpful explanation, Jacqueline. Thank you. And it's it's interesting just to go through exactly what the Key themes are, from the perspective of both the the person with dementia and the carer. Can you tell me a bit more about why do you think it's important at this time that pre-death grief is included within the guideline?
3: I think it's vitally important because if it's not named and if it's not acknowledged, then it's invisible and it's not recognised. And what sort of some of the themes that we've had uh, again from the literature was, um, you know people were experiencing grief and loss, but they just they didn't they didn't recognize it as grieving uh, and perhaps as a normal process within this your trajectory from diagnosis to physical death. So it's critically important that uh, we're able to acknowledge it, speak about it, recognize it, and discuss it and assist the person living with dementia and their carers to have an awareness of what pre-death grief is and where they may seek support for whilst they're processing a pre-death grief journey for all. Um, And that's what um, the guidance is really helpful with signposting with so it heightens awareness, it names it, it acknowledges what may be commonplace experiences within the pre-death grief experience and where to seek out help and support mm. if, you, if you're um, experiencing some of these symptoms.
1: Can we turn then to the recommendations themselves that are in the guideline? Can you tell us more about them?
3: So yeah, so I've, I've picked out some of the key recommendations. Um, so one is that there our key recommendation is that there is assessment, support and management approaches for pre death grief, which should be focused on carers and family units. There's also uh, another recommendation of um, around about awareness for health and social care professionals, and them having further education. And awareness about how they can support the person living with dementia and their carers in the pre-death grief journey and that also interlocks with the promoting excellence framework and dementia so there is a synergy between what the sign guidance is recommending and also what we're, we're seeing nationally within the promoting excellence framework for dementia recognition and then I hope you'll forgive me, I've gone a little bit off-piste, but I really wanted to uh, recommend and highlight the SIGN guideline publication for the assessment, diagnosis, care and support for people with dementia their carers. It's a patient and carers information leaflet, which is being produced in parallel by SIGN. And it's uh, person-friendly, plain English, distillation of the tome of the sign guidelines into quite a user-friendly booklet for people living with dementia and their carers and I heartily recommend signposting people to those guidelines because there's quite a nice um, section on pre-death grief within those guidelines and you know I think that will help conceptualise what pre-death grief is. And again, there's an acknowledgement from quotations of carers and people living with dementia, what their experience of pre-death grief is like. So that might resonate with somebody. And in addition to that, it offers support and signposting as within, within that patient information leaflet. So not per se a guideline recommendation, but nevertheless um, heartily recommend the use of the parallel booklet in clinical practice.
1: I'm more than happy for you to mention that and we will um, make sure that there is a link to that document within the information that goes alongside this podcast episode and we're also producing uh, an audio version of the patient version of the guideline as well so that people can access it that way if that is the way that they would prefer to do so. I'm really, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Jacqueline. Thank you very much for sharing your insight in terms of being part of the guideline development uh, group and just explaining a little bit more about exactly what pre-death grief is. Thank you very much indeed.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: And back to you, Leona.
0: We're now joined by Marine Ritchie, who's going to share her personal experience of dealing with pre-death grief while caring for her husband, Dave, after his dementia diagnosis. Thanks for joining us, Marine, To talk about what I'm sure is a really emotional issue for you, can you start by telling us about Dave and what happened after his dementia diagnosis?
4: Yeah, thank you, Uh, Leona, for inviting me to speak to you about this today. My husband, Dave, um, to give you a bit of background, was a pilot with British Airways. We met water skiing at a Boyne Loch in Aberdeenshire, and we got married in 1979. Had two daughters. He was then a helicopter pilot with British Airways, uh, flying out to the rigs. Um, He had been a Navy pilot, and then he transferred to fixed-wing aircraft to 757s, and he was flying all over the world. He was very healthy, very fit. He loved swimming. He stopped smoking when we had our children and never started again. He walked everywhere and we just loved going on holiday. He had compulsory retirement at 55 in 2000. And we managed to celebrate our 40th anniversary in a a lovely care home in April, 2019, just two months before he died. To go back to his diagnosis, his diagnosis was in two stages. In March 2010, uh, he told me he was having an ECG and a CT scan and it was because he was having ear pain and headaches and the GP had referred him. I didn't know anything about dementia then, so I believe that's what he was having them for. In May 2010, he went alone for the results um, to uh, the Glencatter Centre, which was our local older people's dementia centre. He was told there on his own that he had small vessel disease and deep white matter ischemia, possibly early stages vascular dementia. He, no no further action, just go away, um, back to the GP, GP will refer you when they think it's suitable. Going home, he met um, neighbours and they could see from his face that he was really upset. He was absolutely devastated because his mother had had vascular dementia and been diagnosed in his, her 80s and she'd lived to 102, and he knew all about dementia, so for him this was a, a really traumatic event to be told this, but also he wasn't told formally that it was vascular, just probably, so he told me that night, and then he didn't want to talk about it, he didn't want to know anything, and for the next three years we'd, we didn't discuss it, but I was researching, I was online, I was looking at all kinds of dementia, progression. Was there medication? Was there anything we could do? And we were just getting on with life. And in that three years, he was beginning to show more and more signs and I was beginning to get concerned. And then in 2013, he decided, okay, I've got this, it's getting worse. And he'd signed up for research. That was probably the worst thing he could have done because during the tests, On a regular basis, he began to realise just how much he was starting to deteriorate, all the things that were starting to affect him. And he was beginning to panic that it was going very fast and not at all like his mother's dementia, because everyone is different and everyone reacts differently to this disease. So all he could concentrate on at that stage was let's get wills done, let's get power of attorney, let's book funeral plans and then let's just get on with it. But his gp had also retired so that's i think that's why no one contacted him in those three years so we i managed to get him back to my gp and um, she sent him for tests and this was 2014 so we had actually lost three whole years of doing anything that might have helped when she referred him we got a ct scan we got a spec scan Because they weren't sure if it was mixed dementia. And in the end, because he was losing, he was also losing his speech. So, in the end, he got a formal diagnosis of vascular dementia and aphasia. So, again, back to Google, Mr. Google, and get what is all of this and what is definitely going to happen. And at that stage, he also had his driving license taken away. And for a man who drove everywhere and loved cars, and that was another
0: big thing. Thanks for sharing that with us, Marion. Some really lovely reflective memories of you and Dave's time together and your marriage together, but obviously some very difficult memories um, as his illness progressed. When did you start experiencing this term, pre death grief, and did you know what it was?
4: Probably from, I didn't know the term, I didn't know that that's what I was suffering from. Because there was no post diagnostic support way back in 2010, We were just left alone. I went to the GP and as we usually do with most people, they say it's depression. It's depression. Um, Here's some antidepressants. This will take the edge off. I was really, really reluctant to start them. But she was very good and said, look, at any stage you can come off, you'll be fine. But this will just help you get through. And here I am 12 years later, still getting through (laughs) on antidepressants. But I think it was it was a pre-death grief because as soon as you get the diagnosis and it's it's there and you you have to face it, you start to think about all the things that you're not going to be able to do. All the things he's going to miss out on. He can't drive now. I'll have to take over. I don't want to take over. I'm going to become a carer. I don't want to be a carer. Um, and it's a mixture of guilt. I think guilt goes very hand in hand with pre-death grief because all the time you're questioning yourself. I went to, at that stage of getting that diagnosis, when I was really not coping, I wasn't. I, I found Alzheimer Scotland, and we had a dementia resource centre. And I went there, and thankfully, they understood why how I was feeling, what I was going through, and the dementia advisor there was an absolutely amazing lifeline. And she said, look, counselling might help, Do you want to try it? So I had a a few sessions of counselling and it just made me realise that it wasn't anything I had done. It it wasn't anything he had done. It was just one of these things. You don't know who's going to get dementia. Let's make the best of it. Let's be organised. Let's plan for the future. But let's do as much as we possibly can. It, It doesn't help because always in the background is that grief of what's not to be.
0: So you've touched on some of the support that you were able to hook into at that, that time, Marion. What support do you feel was available while you were going through this? Do you feel that there was adequate support in place? No, um, there, there isn't adequate support. Um,
4: even when you go online, there is guidance on on a, about dementia, but there there's nothing... To be honest, the best support was carer groups and being introduced through a dementia advisor. And then in 2014, post diagnostic support came in. So I got a link worker and having that kind of support a one to one, one to one is the best ever. But having somebody who could signpost you to other groups, to support and counselling, to cafes that you could go to together, to activities. When the illness, As you're going through this illness process and things are starting to become more and more difficult to handle, there is is no real support, especially for younger people, especially for, he was 65 at diagnosis and he died at 74, which is maybe, maybe that's not thought of as young because 65 is now the old age limit, but services are not geared up for that age either. So you go to a cafe, but most of them are older people. You get to chat. Um, we also had to stop that when he, his speech was becoming difficult and he couldn't form sentences. So then he was conscious he couldn't talk to people. It was great support for me because I had other people in the same position, but getting out to even in class, evening support things or, or having a life, um, which is also another part of the the pre-death grief. You, your life is gone as soon as you become that carer you're 24/7 and it's not that you don't want to do it because it's your spouse or your your family it's something that's put upon you and it's also stressful for the person with dementia because they're grieving too they're going through exactly the same process they're they're thinking about their future what they're not going to see grandchildren and graduations and i feel guilty that i didn't recognize how he was feeling as much which again just is a constant cycle of trying to work it through good days and then this guilt and this grief of what
0: what am I going to do in the future as far as the new guideline goes Marion, how important to you is it that it has this section on pre-death grief
4: it's really importantly on I I'm, I've I'm so delighted that it's there when I started the guideline I I felt what am I doing here because there were so many professionals medical professionals who who knew all about tests and everything but to be told constantly it's just depression and you'll get over it and this will help it's just not good enough and to understand that it is this guilty feeling that is making you grieve for all these things uh, and just to have that recognized has been amazing and also the fact that the guideline has split it into three types of grief as well it's anticipatory grief which is maybe an easier term than pre-death grief because it is anticipating all the things so I think it's a better term for it and then transitions and things that that trigger all these feelings because everyone knows about after-death grief and that's normal and you expect that but to also recognise that that there is this stage and then there is the normal stage. And then if you don't go over that normal stage, if you continue to go over in your mind um, all the things that might, could have done this better, could have stopped him going into hospital. My husband was sectioned for six months. That was an absolutely horrendous time in my life going into a dementia-specific mental health ward. That was awful. I have seen things in there I can't unsee. And I know I should put it all behind and just get on with life. But every so often you remember something. And for that, that becomes complicated grief. So again, the guideline has has put this in as well. Um, so, no, I am, I'm just so delighted that professionals are realising there is so many facets to this. And it's not just me as the carer. My daughter, one of my daughters had to go to counselling after. He died because she was doing exactly the same. She couldn't let go of all these feelings. And I also went back to a local charity, Carers Link, locally here, and they suggested counselling. So I had another 12 sessions, which helped again. But if I hadn't been involved with Carers Link, I wouldn't have been offered these. So it's just how people access this information. It needs to be out there. We're so frightened to talk about it. We're so frightened to talk about dementia that, um, yeah, grief is there. It's real. It doesn't go away. And it's not just because someone has died. It's it's because of the way they died, what they suffered or through their condition. It's remembering the good times and then feeling guilty about them. What's going to happen now? I could still have 20 years left. I don't really want it on my own but I have to I now realize four years on I have to start moving on or this do so, be with me forever sorry
0: so for for anyone listening today Marion who's caring for a loved one with dementia and experiencing this pre-death grief but not knowing what to do or where to go for support what advice could you give to them I think, Leona, the first thing they have to be told is just don't
4: be frightened to reach out and ask for help. Dementia affects one in three people, and two of those are women, um, which is a horrendous um, figure to think about. Women are carers from the time they have children through to looking after parents, through, and they don't expect to be carers for their spouses as well. I would say go to your GP, go and ask about the patient version of the sign guidelines. I I would love to see this patient version hanging on walls, on notice boards, in any waiting room that you have to sit and wait in. Hospitals, clinics, dentists, anywhere. I don't care whether it is, if it's a waiting room and you're sitting, don't have a magazine, have a, a dementia guideline there sitting. Is the the This one for patients, we had started thinking we'd have two guidelines one for patients and one for carers, but the questions are all the same. We all want to know the same answers, and it's an easy read. It's, it's broken down into the things that you want to ask about diagnosis, about tests, what tests will I get, will I get all these tests? It's simplified, and it's full of lots of information, and we took two and a half years to get these guidelines all renewed and all up to date and great evidence and recommendations in them. Let's get them out there and let's let's get people seeing them and
0: talking about it. Thanks, Marion. And we really appreciate your openness in sharing your story with us. Thanks for inviting me. Anything I can do
4: to get these guidelines in the public view, um, I'm happy to do.
0: Thanks, Marion.
1: Thanks, Leona, and thank you, Marion, for sharing your story. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. As we've heard today, receiving a dementia diagnosis can be extremely hard for the person affected and for their support network, but hopefully the new guideline will help health and care professionals make vital improvements for people with dementia and their carers.
0: Join us next time where we'll be looking at another aspect of quality improvement in health and care in Scotland. If you'd like to keep up with our work in the meantime or to get in touch with us, you can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, LinkedIn and on Facebook. We look forward to welcoming you back soon. Bye for now.